Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the movie we watched this week. Levi, tell us about The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Journalist Michael Blomkist is aided in his search for a woman who has been missing for 40 years by Elizabeth Salander, a young computer hacker. David Fincher, you've done it again. You've made a pretty good movie. This movie is like... It kind of blew me away. The second time I've seen it, I saw it in the theater um, when it came out. Obviously, a very affecting movie. It's uh, it, There's a lot to take in. It's got a um, lot of scenes. It's got a lot of scenes. Watching it on the rewatch, knowing the... I actually kind of forgot about the mystery, um, about what happened. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize... I had forgotten that... that um, the twists... The twists and the turns that that she was actually alive. Uh, oh, you forgot that? That was a central. Yeah. That's the big reveal. Yeah, I watched that. Right? It was like watching it again for the first time. Well, yes, yes, and also, um, Stellan Skarsgård's whole thing of the t- torture dungeon that kind of overshadowed. That was like the thing I remembered from the movie. Actually, a lot of stuff kind of caught me by par- surprise because I was like, "Oh shit, I completely forgot that 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 happened." But you did not forget the torture dungeon. No. In Skarsgård's basement. Daniel Craig. Because he... Daniel Craig had, like, a little torture. You know, because he was tortured in um, Casino Royale. Yeah. Uh, the only the, way to torture James Bond, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yes. To smack him in the balls. Yeah. And over take and over. No clothes. He's not allowed anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tortured in this. So, yeah, for some reason, like, that all stood out to me. So... Um, I think understanding the where all the clues were pointing toward, because all the clues were pointing toward um, Skarsgård. Um, so understanding all of that beforehand helped me unravel the mystery a little bit better and helped me follow it a little bit better, because it's hard to understand these people. You know, a lot of them are American actors or British actors trying to do Swedish accents, and it could get really convoluted from time to time. So, anyway, needless to say, uh, it's the second time watching this movie, and I liked it a lot better than I did even the first time I watched this movie, and I still thought it was a good movie the first time I watched it. I liked it. I think in the grand filmography, it it doesn't hit quite as... I don't... And I don't... I have, I've been thinking about it all day, trying to put my finger on what it is that didn't strike me as much with this film. I've seen the Swedish versions of these, this film, all three of them. I know hmm. kind of the whole overarching. I have not read the books. Uh, just, you know, I think that's something that, especially the super fans of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, that might be important to them. So the direction right. we're coming from, we neither of us have book knowledge mm-hmm. uh, to distinguish from. Wait, why, why, have, are you, why are you assuming I haven't read the books? You've read the book? Well, no. <laughs> why? Why are you assuming that I haven't? <laughs> I feel like you would have you would have led with that because right, then you would okay. have that. I think that's a. I just want you to know I can read, Levi. That's all I'm trying to establish here. I can you, read. You've always said that, but have <laughs> you read the book? I guess Fight Club. You said that you read Fight Club. No, I didn't read Fight Club. I read oh, other Paladuck books, but I did not read Fight Club. <laughs> all right, this is taking an odd turn. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be a twist at the end. So stay with us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I haven't Back seen the Swedish versions either. <laughs> I haven't um, seen the Swedish versions either. Um, so this is like the only exposure I have to Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is this movie. Yeah, and there's there was some really good forum uh, discussion about you know different people prefer different forms. I think I mm-hmm. prefer the Swedish version. But it's also been quite a few years since I've seen it. So, and I, I follow, I'm similar to you. I remembered the twist. I remember she was still alive, that Harriet was still alive. And I remembered Skarsgård's torture dungeon for sure. Yep. Um, I also knew the rape scene was coming, which was mm-hmm. something I really was not keen on watching again. Uh, right. I forgot that it happens twice. That was really. Not fun. Um, yeah, I forgot that it happened twice as well. I thought when she went to his apartment, 
I was like, oh, this is where she tattoos him. Nope. Gets yeah, way worse. Got really excited for her to <laughs> to <laughs> take her way revenge worse. and that uh yeah. Yeah. So uh you know, I just I mean where so in the in the grand filmography of David mm-hmm. Fincher, where do you come down on that? We're we're getting close to the end. We're gonna have yeah. to start ordering these movies. Is this gonna be in your top half or your bottom half? It's gonna be my top three, I think. Wow. Yeah. I really like this movie. I thought that it was uh it reminded me so much of True Detective actually. Um in a lot of ways. And I season one of True Detective is probably my favorite season of television ever. Uh, and there were so many correlations kind of thematically and tonally that carried across yeah, uh, I see that. season one of True Detective and Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and I really liked it, and I liked how it was novelistic. I liked how the movie ended, basically, and then there was 20 more minutes of stuff. Like, they were really trying to get to this sequel. Um, the only stuff that kind of weared on me was that it seemed like Daniel Craig's whole plot was nowhere near as interesting as uh as uh Rudy Mara's whole plot um and to me it's interesting because really Daniel Craig is kind of the protagonist of the movie and yet the girl with the dragon tattoo is way more interesting and she's like the superhero of the movie um so that was the only thing that was a little weird to me that might be where I cut, where my I start to separate is I think that because mm-hmm. it's Numi Rapace. Did I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. Is yep. Elizabeth, is Elizabeth Slander in the the Swedish version? And yep. I think she, I think Rooney Mara and her. That's a wash. You're not going to be. It's difficult to I think judge there uh, mm-hmm. to dis- determine who is a better actor. I think they both did a fantastic job with what is a really incredibly I think difficult role. Uh, yep. playing a girl that has photographic memory that is so abused and in the first film there she comes with a lot of baggage that the next two films kind of pick up and run with so they really become their it's kind of a hmm. the first movie is kind of a prologue and then you get basically a a, a sequels uh, right a two-part series about her history and a larger conspiracy um, okay so I think they did great with that. I think that uh, the guy who plays Bloomquist in the Swedish version is much better. He he fits the role. His confidence levels just feels like it's tuned in correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, and maybe this is Daniel Craig coming off of Quantum of Solace. He's James, he's solidly James Bond at this point, right? Um, as well as he was in the Tintin movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, he was in voice. another movie where he was uh, he played a um, a Jewish like uh, it was kind of like a more sobering version of <laughs> Glorious Bastards, Cowboys versus Aliens. No, <laughs> uh, you're talking. Uh, scrolling through it here, it's uh, no, not Munich. Um, it's Invictor, Invictor, Defiance, uh, Defiance. Mm, that's the one. That was the one where he leads like a militia of uh, of Jewish They're um, in Poland I think. resistant fighters against Nazis. Yeah, yeah, Defiance. really good movie. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's that's uh, his specialty. He looks like a guy who can kick ass and right stays cool under fire. And I don't know that I buy Bloomkist as that guy. He's got a different set of social skills that. He appears to have operated on, hmm. and none of those, as far as the the dialogue of the character and the actions of the character, the actions of the character reveal. I don't think project the same confidence that Daniel Craig typically does in his everyday life. It's hmm. just his his resting state does not necessarily align. I don't think he okay. was a bad Bloomquist, but I think that's a well shortcoming. coming to it from. Having no no frame of reference based on the Swedish version, I thought that they both killed it. I thought I thought they were both awesome in their roles. Um, I I didn't think Daniel Craig was at all out of place in his role. I felt like he owned the role pretty well. Um, I liked him as kind of the investigator, going out knocking on doors, asking questions of people. Uh, I thought that he was just great in that, and I think that I think that Rudy Mara is just like amazing. She is so amazing in this role. Like she 
completely is like transformed into this character and um i was really just so enthralled with her epic storyline and she is dude she's like a freaking superhero i love it like the whole thing is she is almost like an alien she's almost like superman she like came from the planet krypton and she uh is simply appalled by the human race and everything that uh she sees in humanity and at the same time she has all of these amazing skills that allow her to uncover those deep dark secrets in humanity and it only i'm sure detests her more as a character so like i just love watching her chase down Stellan Skarsgård on a motorcycle uh with a gun <laughs> yep. like ready to blow his head off and um i don't know i thought i thought that uh she was just absolutely amazing in this role i thought she was she just did an incredible job it's she did fantastic and so here's where i'm curious where you come down on this there's one moment in particular it's the when the first time Elizabeth and uh Daniel Craig just keep going rotating their names around uh have yeah. sex did you uh-huh. did you buy that chemistry the weird awkward chemistry in that moment do you think it was intentional that it because i watched it with jackson and liz mm-hmm. and i as a group the group consensus was it it's a weird moment it doesn't it it feels strange because suddenly he just got nearly shot in the head right um and then he goes in and he goes full daniel craig in his stripping uh, mm-hmm. And then Rooney Mara just comes and jumps on him, and yep. she's so awkward prior and after. Uh, I don't know. So thought, as somebody I who that, came into this I, new, I didn't think she was awkward after. I mean, the morning after thing, she made him breakfast. Like it was actually a really sweet moment between the two of them after that. But that um, seems well, and then you know, you talk about the novelization and the extra. The at the end, you know, at mm-hmm. the climax of the film, there's a, quite a bit of follow up. And that's yeah. where I really think Rooney Mara kills it is when she sees Mikael with uh, his other girlfriend walking down the street uh-huh. and she just immediately jacket in the trash can. And you realize yeah. that she's working so hard to find some even playing field. And right. she just can't. It just can't win. She- she is continually trying to restore her own faith in humanity, and humanity keeps slapping her in the face. I mean, uh, I didn't think that that scene was. I mean, I don't. I don't pretend to understand what goes through her mind and her view on the world, because even the horrific things that happened to her in this movie are just a snapshot of what's happened to her during her lifetime. Um, I mean, the private investigation firm talks about it that she has had an extremely rough life, and that's in reference completely outside of the horrific events that happened to her in this movie. So she continuously, time and time again, is trying to make... uh, I I mean, I think it's admirable that she keeps on trying to make connections to humanity when humanity keeps on um, showing its ugliest side to her. Uh, And in some ways, it allows her to be desensitized and allows her to be better at her job even because she... Uh, can look at these horrific photos of dismembered uh, bodies and doesn't even bat an eye at it. Um, so it enhances her skills, mm-hmm. but at the same time, her fulfillment, her personal fulfillment, her connection to other people just keeps on getting stomped on and trampled on. Um, you know, one you could see one of the only people that she actually cared about was uh, her guardian who played chess with her. Yeah. And he gets taken from her in this. Like basically everything, every time she turns around, something gets stolen from her um, in violent and horrific ways. Uh, And so I think that I think her maybe having sex with Daniel Craig's character is an attempt at connect connection, human connection. Um, And that's just her way of doing that is to be really out of the blue and weird about it. (laughs) And I really love when, uh, you know, and it's kudos to the writer, really. And I mm-hmm. I would be curious to see the book adaptation of that moment when her or her original guardian uh, is yep. sitting there and she's talking to him. It's a, just the one-sided conversation because of his injuries. Mm-hmm. But, but that's a moment where she's – it really feels like she's talking to the – as an audience member, you are – 
when she's saying, I made a friend and you as the audience go, Oh, you know, it feels like she's talking to it. It's this cool, it's a circuitous route to breaking the fourth wall because there's no response from the, from the guardian and the audience is not allowed a response, but you kind of, the emotion in that moment is one of the really genuine outreachings reach where she reaches out. And I think that strikes a nice chord. It's a great movie. It hits all of the Fincher. Mm. Uh, There's a quote I heard in a, in one of the interviews, Scott Rudin said that, you know, for David Fincher, his, his themes are outsiders, alienation, isolation, marginalization. And that's, this movie had, is just striking all the same chords that we've hit time and again. And, yeah. And this falls, I think, lower on my list, but it's a solid David Fincher movie. I think he uses all of his skills to just make it sing in the best way possible. And it's. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, two and a half hours really clips by with this thing. I think that, uh, it's really compelling. I mean, I think that this might be, for me, his most compelling movie i I, maybe even more compelling than the social network um maybe even more compelling than zodiac it's just a really compelling movie you are ready to jump to the next scene and even though it does last two and a half hours long it doesn't seem like anything's wasted um there is the last kind of epilogue where she goes and empties the um the crime boss's (laughs) bank (laughs) accounts and does all that stuff but um and that kind of drags. You get the little Return of the King thing at the end. But you, when you understand that, like, they're trying to put together a uh, trilogy here, they're trying to set up more than just this internal story, um, and they're really trying to drive to something new, I think that that's completely forgivable, and it's still really interesting. And from everything I've I've heard regarding the books, the movie is a fairly faithful adaptation. That it, You know, it really... Tra- they both the Swedish and the American version, they try and be as honest to the books. And I think it depends on the reader, but I've gotten mixed reviews as to whether or not some have said that the, you know, they didn't like the, how it was written, but the book itself is a translation from Swedish. So I think the movie might help those. If you maybe struggled with the book, the movie is an opportunity to kind of get past because it gets punched, you know, punched up for the American audience. Although seeing yeah. all of these American people with British accents being in Sweden and talking about <laughs> Sweden might, yeah. it, I, it, I, on I, an initial watching, you might be like, wait, they're supposed to be Swedish? I don't think they're doing British accents. I mean, I think Daniel Craig isn't doing anything to cover up his British accent, but I think they're trying to do Swedish accents. Like this, like, uh, That's, yeah, you're right. When I, you know, I, I think about the thought as Daniel Craig is speaking and then it just ratches in yeah. my mind. Yeah, Daniel Craig didn't do much, but I, I think I think Rooney Mara does a pretty good Swedish accent in this thing. Yeah, I think because so Swedish too. accents are very similar to just straight up American accents. There's just like a few little subtle changes. When, yeah. when a Swedish person is speaking English, it doesn't sound. I mean, Stellan Skarsgård in this movie, he is Swedish or he's Norwegian maybe, but he's Scandinavian. Like the uh, that's that's like that Scandinavian accent. Well, and he generally so. sounds like that all the time, and. Yeah, I he's, don't he's know Swedish. that I've ever he's put Swedish. a big, like whenever I see him on the screen, I don't go ah listen to that accent like I do with guys like Daniel. Craig. Well, I mean, he's 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 in Thor, so yeah, <laughs> he plays. But those he's characters. he's also Nor- or he's Scandinavian in that as well. I don't yeah. know. It's just as a I I just like him as an actor. He's a good actor. Oh, he's a great he actor. Plays he's an amazing actor. Creepy torturer so well. Yeah. All of the performances in this were just solid and i think that yeah it's a big credit to david fincher he just brings out the best in people he does i mean i want to get back to elizabeth because i want to talk about her character a little more i think that she is just such a tragic character um in so many ways like and we talked about how every time she tries to make a human connection she gets thwarted um but she also kind of has these moments where she uh, is thwarted in other ways. Like she wanted to rain down vengeance on this guy, on this murderer of women. Uh, when she found out who he was, she hits him in the face with the golf club, rips open his cheek, and she's ready to go and gun him down. And if she does that, she's going to jail for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, 
I feel like I don't know. I mean, maybe not. Because if the plot is uncovered, if they find his torture dungeon, if they find all this stuff, maybe she gets off. Also, I don't think they have life sentences in Sweden. But um, I but think it does. Come, I'm trying to remember now the second film. If it, yeah, somebody's in. Oh no, Mike Mikael is. I think in. I don't remember. Anyways, um, you should really watch the rest of the trilogy. Just switch over to the other. Yeah, version. I'll just switch over to the Swedish the, ones. But what I, what I want to get back to my point. So what I'm saying is that. Bad. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that. You know, even in that, she's thwarted. Like she's trying to kill the guy, and he he dies at a gas station explosion. Do you? So, did you take note when she asks for permission to shoot him? Mm-hmm. Do you have a theory as to why that is? Was that just a odd dramatic moment? Was it a mm-hmm. device wherein you know in the movies when they shoot the bad guy and they're like, oh, I meant I needed to question him. I mean, what was the yeah. what was that moment for? I think there's two different things to it. I think one of it is reveals to her character reveals this to her character a little bit more, uh, in that she she doesn't she has a strange she doesn't have a good handle on humanity. She doesn't know whether or not her actions are going to be seen as aggressive or weird or wrong, uh, or you know. I mean, she's just walking down the subway and some guy tries to steal her backpack and she has to, like, fight him off. Like, she's fighting everything around her at all times. She's constantly being attacked. Um, And so I think maybe it's just this outside idea in her mind that maybe she should just clear this with somebody before she does it because everything (laughs) that she does seems to... uh, seems to backfire, you know? it's And it's... She's such a tragic figure because you just want to, like, reach out to her and be like, it's not your fault, like it's just the world is just pouncing on you um because they're perceiving you i don't know but it's it's tragic because it's not her fault she's just constantly getting pummeled by the world and but, so i think part of that is her just kind of being like i don't know how this is going to be perceived i just want to ask permission is it okay if i kill this guy because i feel like it's the right thing to do it is a good reason to have the last not the last like three minutes, but the last mm-hmm. you know fifteen minutes where she goes on her gallivanting trip around the world, defeating yeah. the villain and taking all of his money. That is a cathartic moment. Yeah. It's really her most successful venture, mm-hmm. where wherein nothing truly tragic happens as she runs out and does it, even to the degree where yeah. she asks for the loan to do it, and yeah, and Mikael doesn't even blink. He goes, yeah, doesn't even take blink. fifty grand. That's cool. Because if anything, she's trustworthy. Yes. And that's that's kind of the great thing that she has established with Mikkel is that there's a trust between the two. And I feel like she just doesn't... She lives in a world where nobody trusts her and everybody is out to get her. Like, for reals. Yeah. It's- um, so finding that little spark of human connection and then seeing it all get destroyed when Mikkel goes back to his adulterous relationship with his boss it's 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 um it's, it's a tragic for her because it's another it's just another tick on the tragic scale for her but that's i mean it, it's what makes her it's what makes you root for her character so much is like you just want it to work out for her because she is so good at what she does like she and she is ultimately always fighting for right you know she's always fighting for justice Really, that's what her central, her core is, is justice. Um, and so it's a noble pursuit, and so you just want to root for her in that cause. Well, and the security um, firm highlights yeah. that. They say she works on what she wants to, and we yeah. get it, it. they repeat it enough times that she is very selective in what she works on, and by the end, mm-hmm. you are justified that she is a vigilante. and I, She is yeah. Batman with no money. No money Batman. Well, she's got money now. She does so have. Movies, does, don't movies, say what she does with two billion dollars. Does she? Did she actually transfer that to her account though? She transferred it to five accounts. And yes, they make but I thought no that she made that as to what those are. Well, yeah, but it got reported on the news. So if those if those accounts are in the news, then the government knows what those accounts are, and they would have been frozen immediately. So you think the move was just to put them on the radar? Wait a second. So when the when she is transferring the money to the accounts. The guy shows her a calculator. Uh-huh. And the calculator says 3 billion. So she took a billion for herself. She did take out a bunch of 
bonds as well to get. Yep. So she transferred and she had bonds. So the bonds are probably the personal yep. cash. And I don't yeah. remember in what amount she took out the bonds. Yeah, but that that was that was that was the amount. Well, that's the amount that she was transferring to the five accounts. I don't know. I just think she skimmed some off the top. I don't think she has billions of dollars. Well, it would put her. It's a little hard to cover up billions of dollars. But I think if she skimmed some off the top, she could probably figure out a way to to keep it underground and fund herself for the rest of her life. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me tell you, it's short lived, from what I recall. Okay, that's the other <laughs> funny thing to me is bonds because the bonds come up again. The bonds from Panic Room. Oh, Something about yeah. Fincher and Bonds. Bonds are always a movie favorite, and I don't know yeah. if they're just the 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 least easy to trace or what. But I'm gonna get some yeah. Bonds just in case. <laughs> you know, just get some Bonds, put them in your Panic Room. You're okay. You know, I'm just gonna do something funny with them at the very. I'm gonna die, and I'm gonna leave you a note, you Jordy mm-hmm. and <laughs> Jesse. It's gonna say, "I have Bonds hidden somewhere," and then you'll find <laughs> it'll be just the the James Bond DVD collection. Yeah, there you go. It'll be signed by <laughs> Daniel Craig. Um, yucky, yucky, yucky. Yeah, I, I thought that I thought I just thought that Rooney Mara did an amazing job portraying this character, and uh, I want to see more of her. Like, I'm it bummed me out that we didn't get to get the sequels um, to this movie because it really did set its up set itself up for that, set itself up for sequels, but at the same time. It doesn't require sequels in that uh, it's fine being a standalone movie. You just kind of wish that they were there. Well, is like, Rooney it, Mara, is she rumored to be in the next in Blade Runner? Have you heard that news? Is that where? Or am I thinking of somebody else? Uh, I, I, I don't, don't think she's hurt for work. I haven't seen Carol yet, which is very oh, no, high she's on my fine. She's she's working. I mean, it's not it's not a Rooney Mara thing. It's just a girl with the dragon tattoo thing. I just yeah. kind of wish that she was that she was. It's just um, such a good to see an actor return to a a role that they really nailed is always just yeah. very satisfying. But it's also satisfying to just leave it as a standalone too. Like the one thing that I kind of wish in watching this and really thinking about it in terms of like true detective is like, I wish there was a girl with the dragon tattoo series on like HBO and they were able to tell the whole story over like three seasons on HBO. I think that would be really, really cool. Um, unfortunately I think it's entered the cultural zeitgeist so much that they wouldn't be able to do the first book. But I think if they kind of came back and explored it a little bit more in that regard, I think it'd be really cool. Or like a Netflix series. Yeah, um, it's I think it, the, something like the that. Source would be great. material is a great. It's it's good thriller. It's got great tension. Mm-hmm. It's got very interesting characters. the The ability to make Elizabeth Slander uh, personable, despite all of her odd intric- intricacies and yeah. how difficult she has a time with humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. really I mean that's a hats off to, to the author yeah um, he interesting guy too I you know I did not read into I remember there was a period where I knew a lot of people that read the book um, but I just never Stieg Larsson mm-hmm. never followed have not followed I don't know much about him I mean he was he basically is the Daniel Craig character in some ways he is a uh, reporter and author uh, who was really interested in um, in the far right and talking about uncovering the shadows of the far right. So I thought By far right. Do you mean like conservative conspiracies? I'm talking about fascism. Oh, oh, this Basically. is here's our plug for Secret Hitler. Yeah, Secret Hitler. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to secret. People aren't going to know what we're talking about. When we're talking about secret. <laughs> I know that. And that's exactly, exactly. That's what makes <laughs> a good conspiracy. Uh, I would like to get back to that quote that you read though, where you were reading all of those things that David Fincher films are. Yes. Would you like uh, me to read it one more time? Sure. Outsiders, alienation, isolation, marginalization. Alien isolation <laughs> is a video game, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but the one thing I think is I want to talk about that isolation because all of his movies are pressure cookers and Mm -hmm. the way that he, 
it's it's such a common thread throughout all of his films, except for Benjamin Button, which is kind of a pressure cooker because has a timer on it. He's turning into a baby. <laughs> he's gonna die. He's gonna he's gonna be a baby man. Um, he's gonna be a real old baby man. He's gonna wink out of existence. Yeah. Uh. So, but they all have this thing of of slowly getting more and more claustrophobic. It's really obvious with something like. Uh, Panic Room, yeah. which is claustrophobic movie. Uh, but like even like the game, like the game, it's just like the world closes in on these people. Fight Club, the world closes in. Seven, the world closes in. Um, so this I felt like was right on par with all of that. We're gonna stick you out in the middle of nowhere, and I love the line that Stellan Skarsgård gives. He's like, you know, why did you come back in the house? All I had to do was ask you for a drink and that get you to come back. You knew something was wrong and that you came back in the house. Uh, just all of these like small human nature things that um, – because the whole audience is like, don't go in. Don't go back in the house. You're uh, out. So run. You're out. Yeah, you're out. Just run. I guess he might chase him through the woods with a rifle or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so that whole pressure cooker thing is definitely a fincherism. And the isolationism – I think contributes to that. Well, and then, uh, putting people in uh, out in an isolated, in an isolated place, whether it is a, uh, an isolation of a personality trait or a physical isolation of a physical space. Um, like even in Zodiac, uh, he becomes more and more isolated as time goes on. He loses his kids in the pursuit of the Zodiac killer. You know, it's it's uh, he. I think David Fincher really tries to. Um, you know, whereas like whereas like directors like the Cohen brothers take simple people and put them in outlandish situations, uh, David Fitcher takes normal people and slowly <laughs> turns up the pressure on them, turns up the heat on them as the movie goes on. Well, and I think I absolutely, and I think there is a architectural element to it as well in this film where we go from, like you said, the the outdoors. They're walking around the property. This I the island the boundaries are yeah. quite wide and all of the people on it are suspects and at the end we are standing in a home that at video games boasts this too oh you look you mm-hmm. see that thing in the distance you can go there that yeah. happens like verbatim in this movie we see the house on the hill oh that's Martin's house and then at the end of the movie we're standing in that ha- we're walking around it. Well, this beautiful mm-hmm. glass house. I love, uh, I love that architecture. Um, yep. And then we're going inside, and oh, this thing is—it's not just a house. Like it, the house in some ways sort of condenses around him till we're in a mm-hmm. basement that is really this—the creepy bowels of the of the building. And it, then it explodes, right. and we're back outside. And I think you're right, Zodiac. You go from seeing Jake. Gyllenhaal working on this case at the at the newspaper desk with Chronicle. all of the people around him, and at the end, he is in his house alone. You know, yeah. in this isolated, very small place that is really much quieter too. I think you get a range of sound, which is always something that I've I've noticed with Fincher films that I really love is the the yeah. degree of. Is there a name for that? The ambient, I guess, the ambient noise mm-hmm. of a space. The ambient noise. And by the end, all we get is the wind, essentially. Yeah, but I think that there's a really, uh, there is a interesting thing with the tell of the wind. You know, the wind whistling through the doors in that house. Mm-hmm. It tells uh, it, with, it's leaky. Well, and and you're talking in the tells, sense that well, like there's more there than what we see. There is more there than what we see. What I'm saying is that when. When Daniel Craig's character goes over and has uh, a glass of wine with the group, mm-hmm. and they're having a great time, and then they start to hear this kind of whistling noise. If you listen to it, it sounds like a scream. It yeah, and when you it get sounds to the like end, a scream. Watching through it, having seen an- this movie enough times now, hearing yeah. that scream is always like, oh come on, <laughs> like <I> don't- yeah, <laughs> because because that was. I'm pretty sure that was because he says, when you were having wine, I had a girl locked in this cage. Mm-hmm. That What we hear is not the wind whistling through the doors. What we hear is a scream. Yeah, and he walks off. Skarsgård walks mm-hmm. off. Close the door. And comes back, and you're just, oh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and even with the whistling doors, even the house itself is screaming. So, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's just kind of the filmmaking that it's just those layers of filmmaking that you get with, with great directors is that they are thinking on 12 different levels and you're maybe seeing two of them. Yeah. So it's, and you don't even notice the other, you know, 10 that are right in front of you, but you know that they're setting a mood for you. Um, and then there are two that completely subtextual. So that's, that's kind of what a great director I think does and i think that's why david fincher is probably the best director that we've followed so far and if you would have asked me if that was the case when we started on this fincher adventure i would be like nah he's not as good as tarantino dude i feel like he's way better than tarantino yeah well we had this conversation off air but Mm -hmm. tarantino uh, edgar wright Guillermo del Toro, it feels like they all make films for themselves, but David Fincher really yeah. seems to have, I think, he is much more uh, exterior. He projects more. His mm. films are absolutely for other people, and I think that mm. <laughs> based on what he focuses on, he is trying to really make this experience for the audience. Um mm. And it's funny because I think that's part of the reason his personality is more subdued in a lot of ways is it it relates the fact that his personality is subdued means that in I think he is capable of probably a white, a little bit of a broader range and reaching out to it. And that's a, that could, that's could be a totally ass nine on answer. Well, that's my honest thought. That's your opinion. Falling out of my mouth. As I say, I (laughs) I would respectfully completely disagree with you on that. I would say that, Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino and Guillermo del Toro are very aware of the audience and they're kind of making a thing and being like, look at this thing I did. Uh, And we've talked about it before that, you know, Tarantino doesn't care whether or not you think his movies are too violent because he likes them. And, but I think he inherently also makes them for a type of audience that is him (laughs) (laughs) or that that's, you know he's got a he's got a big audience following. He's not making art films here. He's making flicks that people <laughs> want to watch popcorn and see. Making flicks. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call many of David Fincher's movies popcorn flicks, yeah. and in many ways he pushes the boundaries in ways that the audience is not comfortable with at all. And yet his movies are so affecting that they become extremely memorable to you. Uh, I'm sure Tarantino pushes the envelope uh, by throwing the N word into things, and you know these kind of shock things that he does. Yeah. Um, but they're all kind of. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want dis- to. It sounds like I'm totally dissing Tarantino. I like Tarantino a yeah, lot. Yeah, and I was not trying to. A, I was there, trying to just dis- yeah. find the distinction. I think between the two of them because I think yeah. It is- I well, sorry. Keep uh, he's yeah. He's. He's he does it in a bit of a juvenile way, and I think that Edgar Wright does it in a bit of a juvenile way. I think that uh, Guillermo del Toro does it in a bit of a juvenile way. We've talked about these things about the way that they draw upon nostalgia in order to make their films really entertaining, and they are kind of setting out to make entertaining movies. I, I think del Toro obviously has some smaller films like The Devil's Backbone that don't necessarily follow that, but they're still at some you know it's still a ghost story. Um, ter- uh, David Fincher is not, I don't think, necessarily trying to make really entertaining films. I think he's trying to make cinematic experiences. Yeah. And that's, and, that's, and re- the way that he succeeds over and over, I would say that that's less of an audience pandering than what the other directors we've covered have done. And I think that if you were to look through my viewing history, I think it would reveal in some ways. I'll reach for a Quentin Tarantino before a Fincher. I enjoy a Fincher experience, but I have to be very in a space to kind of absorb yeah. everything that he is projecting versus enjoying the fun and the dialogue and the flick nature of a Tarantino or an Edgar Wright. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you're talking about uh, Fincher's ability to make these cinematic experiences. Uh, it's really an anecdotal gesture, but... Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is a movie that Liz will watch repeatedly, despite the wow. fact that it has such a 
powerful rape scene. And that scene is really, and and I was watching an interview with him and I think there's a lot of discussion to be had around it. I don't think that we are remotely qualified to really dive into it. But he said that the scene is meant to be horrific. It is a horrific act. And to Mm -hmm. try and soften that in any way would be a disservice to everything that is that is encased in such a, a moment. Um, and I think yep. that he absolutely succeeds and, and the way that he manages it. Uh, and Liz is a very sensitive person. She doesn't like Tarantino's more aggressive mm-hmm. acts, but this she is able to sort of work through because of the entire cinematic experience. So, yeah, I think that, like you said, we're completely unqualified to really make a distinction as to the appropriateness of rape scenes in movies. Uh, I'm six foot, 215 pounds, 30, 30 year old dude. I think my chances of being sexually assaulted are pretty low. And therefore I view scenes like that completely differently than somebody who is more vulnerable to them. Um, And so I can't, I don't pretend to have a perspective on that. Uh, I like, I like what uh, a Crichton Brink who is one of our forum posters who comes on the, here a lot. She comments a lot on our forums. She puts it probably the best way that I've seen anybody put. She said, people will always complain about rape scenes for very valid reasons. I think that that's completely like the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I can't comment on the appropriateness of the rape scene in this movie. Um, all I know is that it is really goddamn horrific and so hard to watch and it's pivotal to the you know she points out it's pivotal pivotal to the the plot plot. and so yep you really gotta and the fact that that ema mentioned you know you could hear a pin drop Mm -hmm. in the theater during that scene and Mm -hmm. i think that's yeah that is absolutely at the very least something you could ask for in such a but that's what fincher does i mean i think that tarantino might um you know, Tarantino might make you uncomfortable in weird ways because you're like, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be like laughing at this conversation type of thing. Like that's how Tarantino makes you uncomfortable because it's so schlocky. Like he'll put something really schlocky on the scene and you're like, I don't know if this is funny or not. Uh, David Fincher is going to make you squirm. I mean, he, doing this watch through, there are horrific scenes. I mean, the Zodiac scene where they tie up the people and then the Zodiac killer stabs them in the back. Horrific, Uh man. Um, And, you know, Seven is full of this stuff. Uh, And Gone Girl is going to be full of this stuff next week. Um, I think that this movie probably has the most horrific depictions of any of his films, but he's going to make you... He's going to make you uncomfortable with what's he, what he puts on the screen. And I think that putting these extreme violent acts on to the screen and yet still making movies that are so kind of objectively good, mm-hmm. like you, 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 you stop watching. Once the movie's over, you're like, man, that movie was really compelling. Um, being able to throw these horrific things in there and still make a compelling film around it is is uh it's a mark of of a really amazing director and somebody who stands out in my mind more and more the more of his movies that i watch mm-hmm. and rewatch and, and watch in order and watch in context well, and, and for all of that weight we still get daniel craig leaning out the door and shouting cut when he gets back yep. to his little hovel which is just so funny it's such a dumb yeah, little then- funny moment <laughs> It's such a dumb little funny moment, and then the cat gets dismembered on his doorstep. Yeah. Oh. That's that's David back. Fincher. <laughs> that's David Fincher for you. That duality. The duality of the cat living and dead. Yep. And and I uh I left a cliffhanger earlier in the podcast when I said I think there are two reasons why Elizabeth asks if she can kill the guy. I think that the second reason is that there are moments in David Fincher knows how to just put that little that nice little moment into a movie. And the one that I correlate this to is in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Mm-hmm. When he builds up this sexual tension between Benjamin Button and... Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the love Kate interest Blanchett. in the movie. Ken Kate Blanchett. And they kind of like... 
pass in the night a couple times and they don't follow through and then they finally get to the room and she goes sleep with me and he goes absolutely <laughs> and that and when i remember being in the theater and when that moment happened the theater like erupted in applause like people were like that's a moment yeah and it's the same thing i remember being in the theater after all of this ratcheted tension everybody's stomach is in a crazy knot after watching the knife almost penetrate daniel craig's abdomen to have that little moment where Elizabeth says, can I kill him? <laughs> and Daniel Craig goes, yes. And I remember being in the theater, and there was the same type of reaction from the audience. He goes, yes, kill him! <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, and we talked about it in 7. There's the scene when the delivery truck drops off the package at the end of the movie, and Morgan Freeman is looking at the package, and he goes, should I open it? <laughs> uh... And that's, Should I open it? And, and you know the audience is like, open it, open it, open it. Like David Fincher has a knack for getting these little moments into the scenes where he knows exactly what he's done to get you to this point as an audience member, and he knows exactly what you want as a payoff. And he's able to put it into like two lines of dialogue, and it's really great to to see that and how it's gone through his entire career. Well, and that's it's a it's nice. It's a cute almost to the audience. To to say yeah. it's your chance to it's when you watch Star Wars, the new Star Wars, and you see Han Solo come on the screen, everybody goes wild. They just mm-hmm. do that by putting Han Solo out there. But David Fincher is doing it right. with movies that you are starting and ending in two hours right. with no extra baggage needed. He is able to right. get an audience to just to be enthusiastic, and that's what. All of the directors that we've seen so far have in common is that they all are able to get reactions from a wide range of material out of their mm-hmm. audience. And that's the whole damn reason we do this podcast is because we enjoy <laughs> – we are that audience. We want to react in a the theater. Those are the best theaters to be sitting in is one yeah. where everybody is jazzed. I think the only thing really that Fincher hasn't accomplished is like the tearjerker moment. Um, <laughs> in the way that even Guillermo del Toro has been able to do with something like Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of grown men who uh, were smelling onions in the theater at the end of Pan's Labyrinth. Um, so, <laughs> so he hasn't quite got he hasn't quite gotten to that point, and I think that's what we. Well, I think Benjamin Button came close. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, with all the death in that movie, you know, it keeps on revisiting. <laughs> yeah, but it does. It, it keeps really on revisiting nice the theme the of death. When he was a kid, she took yeah, care he's of a little, him. And, uh, but there's when I, I'm th- I'm thinking specifically when his mom died, when his adopted mother died. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, or some of the other deaths of the old people in the home. Um, no, so let's. I'm gonna cry again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will. I, I do want to kind of talk about this because. I feel like there's a Fincher crime trilogy here that is seven Zodiac girl with the dragon tattoo. Ooh, I like it. And they all follow investigators in their own way. Um, investigators investigating a crime and they all end in very interesting and strange ways. Uh, it's like in seven, the killer basically catches them and ultimately wins in the end mm-hmm. um even though he gets killed he he wins uh in zodiac the killer wins in that he never gets caught escapes justice escapes justice completely and a girl with the dragon tattoo the killer turns out not even to be the killer i mean he is a serial killer but he didn't kill uh what's what's the girl's name uh harriet Harriet. He didn't kill. He didn't Harriet. kill the one that sparked the whole thing off. The, sparked the whole mystery. So it's this interesting thing because in each of these movies are very unorthodox in the way that they handle the mystery, and it's not just a a procedural crime, uh, you know, procedural crime plot where we find the killer, we kill the killer at the end. That's the end of the movie. Uh, they all have a different flavor to them, which I think makes them extremely unique, and I think it's another mark of Fincher. Uh, in this crime trilogy that he has put together. Yeah, he's an excellent curator. The, mm-hmm. Because he is not writing 
much of this. I think it's really a huge uh, point that we should be making with every one of the Fincherisms is he picks solid stuff. And the only case where that did not happen was Aliens 3, where he was just (laughs) out. He just, it was out of his hands given his seniority, his low low status and seniority. Right. Uh, And since then, he has just been. He's hawk-eyed when it comes to picking things out, and it shows. Yeah, and it's and it's it is interesting. Uh, we had a uh, writer write into the email, oh. um, and this is Jacob, uh, and he points out a really interesting point here: is that uh, in many ways, uh, he is in many ways David Fincher is a great adaptionist. Uh, he's a great adapter in that a lot of his movies are books. I think even the majority of his movies are either based on books or short stories. You have mm-hmm. Fight Club, um, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, uh, all based on books or you know, very, very loosely, as we've explored, based on a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah. Um, and then, every, and then, all of his other films aren't written by him either. He doesn't write the movies. He is just able to craft such an amazing world around these stories and really make them his own. And that's what I'm apprehensive even to pursue the Swedish versions of these movies of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo trilogy is because I'm afraid that they are going to be they're going to pale in comparison to the craftsmanship that Fincher brings to this one. That is, it, oh man. I I don't have enough of a memory of the visual and the just the general construction of the film to compare mm-hmm. from. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's been so long since I've seen it. Um, but I agree, it's it's the danger with all of anything comparing anything to David Fincher is he's already starting at such a high level with yeah. his. You know, I have a two pages full of notes that we haven't even had to touch on because the thematic elements of his work are so powerful and so easy to talk about. But I, you know, I note in his scenes where he's his ability to direct scenes of dialogue and power in those dialogue scenes, especially between Lisbeth and her new guardian. That's a really Mm -hmm. haunting uh, execution of his skill when Mm -hmm. as in cutting back and forth between the two characters. Mm -hmm. Um, we had a small joke moment similar to the wine in a pint glass from seven yeah where uh, when daniel craig comes in to and he opens the fridge closes the fridge and a water bottle goes to roll <laughs> off the top he catches it puts it back on and moves on and it's such a human moment yeah that we've had and we've had him in throughout the movies that is really thrown in there it's like <laughs> finding waldo Yep. It, there's so much more going on in the picture, but that right. moment is just kind of like a huh, cool. Yeah, just that little human moment. It's, it's the same beautiful. thing with uh, same thing with the. Also, we get to look in the fridge. Yep. In, in this fridge. movie, like we do it just about every goddamn David Fincher movie. <laughs> we're gonna and we're gonna get a shot to look inside the fridge. Yeah, he really loves something about fridges. Um, what was the other one that? Oh, oh, and. Trent Reznor is back and better than ever with all of the. I think I say better than ever. I, I think Social Network is a more affecting soundtrack, but as good yeah. as ever, as good He's as ever. as good as ever. What did you think about the James Bond opening credits? Yeah. By the way, I thought it was awesome. I thought that there were a couple things that I really loved about it. One is that David Fincher going back to uh, a cool opening title sequence, which he did with uh, Seven, and which he did with. Um, Fight Club, and did he do it with Panic Room? Uh, I can't remember if he did it with Panic Room, but I he think did, so. You know, it's it's him going back to his music video roots. Yeah, and it shows. Like, it totally it really, shows. Just in case you thought he had gotten rusty in that realm, yep. nope. Plus, it's a little wink, I think, to the audience that yeah, guys, we got James Bond in this, <laughs> and so we're gonna do a James Bond esque opening, which is probably better than any James Bond opening ever. Yeah. Um, the what did you think of the Casino Royale opening? Where did you fall on that one? I I think Casino Royale's opening is amazing, but I I like the girl with the you dragon still, tattoo one better one. than just about any of them. Um, yeah. And 
And then at the same time, I feel like this is David Fincher being like, this is my James Bond. This is going to be a franchise. So I want to do this at the beginning of each of the movies to stylistically get you in the mood for this story because it's going to be it's going to be a doozy, guys. Yeah, and I would um, kill to know what his second for uh, girl that played. I don't think the second one's girl played with fire. I think it's yep. girl that kicked the hornet's nest. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that the third one? Either way, whichever one's second, I would I would kill to see what he would do a second time for that yeah. credit scene in this realm. Just having the experience of one, what are the lessons he learns because he's just always progressing we have not seen him do any kind of backslide yeah he just progresses and uh and he does beautiful little things like the cat for instance like yes we get the comedic thing of him walking and being like cat uh but then the the other aspect of that is he yells that he goes into the room and the cat is laying on the table and then he looks at the cat and he says how did you get in and that subtle, small little thing tells us somebody has been in the house. Somebody mm-hmm. opened the door and the cat got in. So yeah. using these, they're just so so layered. You know, you get a little moment of brevity with the cat, but then at the same time, it's a double. Introducing the cat at the beginning of the movie allows us to do a couple of things with the cat later in the movie that give us subtle little clues as to what's happening. And when you see the cat dead, you get to watch Daniel Craig panic and Elizabeth yeah. Slander just immediately start snapping photos. No. Yep. It immediately just distinguishes their characters. characters. Like the it's like the wake up montages that we we often yeah. get from Fincher. This is yep. he takes this moment and condenses it. Well, when they set up the characters at the beginning of the movie, they do a great job of setting them up. This is a good thing. This is really good. Put this in your back pocket. Uh they set up both characters by having other people talk about them. Yeah. So Daniel Craig's character gets set up by having the news talk about him. And then Elizabeth gets set up by having the two people at the private investigation firm talking about her at the table. You know, she's unorthodox. She doesn't come into the office. She works from home, uh, you know. And so all of this stuff as she's like walking into the office. So having other people talk about the characters to introduce the characters is a really, really great way to introduce characters. I think that's another thing we have to put in the Fincherism bucket is masterfully introduces character. And the characters by the end of this movie are so, so structured and layered that they're just fleshed out humans. And that's exactly what you want a character to be. And not a wasted moment because they're moving. They are, they're, are act, you're watching them take actions as people talk about them. So you're getting both at the same time without it having to be this dialogue in scene. Mm-hmm. You piece it together and you get really efficient filmmaking and you get a yep. movie that is probably difficult to get in at two and a half hours for how yeah. much occurs. Absolutely. And, Another great thing that Fincher does, he is a master at setting up the Rube Goldberg machine. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the one that comes to mind in his filmography is Panic Room, how the opening scene, we get a tour of the house. We get a lay of the land. We get an idea of the geography. We uh, get introduced to the house as a character. And this setup is going to be integral to our understanding of the plot for the rest of the film. In this one, I would say anybody who wants to see how to set up a mystery, mm-hmm. watch the scene where Christopher Plummer, I believe it's Christopher Plummer, right? Yep. And Daniel Craig start talking about the the mystery. And the way that it's set up where it's Christopher Plummer walking from room to room, turning on lights, uh, you know, going inside the house, going outside the house, setting up the entire story with a flashback sequence... Yeah, that is shot very similarly to what was done in the game. Yep, um, a little bit of a sepia tone, a little bit of a sepia lighting. Tone. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and what was the other movie with flashback that we were talking about? Was uh, it Benjamin? Zodiac has a. They do the, yes. the flashback to the stabbings. Yes, uh, and Zod- so, um, so doing using flashbacks. But anybody who wants a just a masterclass in setting up a mystery. It's so good. And then there's just the line where he goes, so uh, Dana Craig goes, so who knows about this? And Christopher Plummer says, me, the police, the killer, and now you. And then yeah. that, and then we're starting on the mystery. Um, 
And at so, this point, he's pouring him a glass of wine. They're sitting. We watch yep. the tr- the train is interspersed, and they're leaving. Uh huh. And we know that time has passed in the, even though we've heard the story. Yeah. In the same amount of time. And it's also cool too how the story basically takes place over a full year, um, because when Lisbeth, yeah, when Lisbeth enters the house and finds her guardian um, having suffered a stroke. Uh, music, Christmas music is playing in the apartment. Oh, so that's at the beginning of the movie, and then basically more than a—it's a little bit more than a year. This takes place over a little bit more than a year, which is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the time stretched out. Uh, so, well, speaking oh. of time stretched out, that's an hour, dude. Yeah, it's it's Fincher makes it easy. Yeah, Fincher. <laughs> He does make it. You know, sometimes we get movies, and I'm just like, I don't know how I'm going to talk about this thing for an hour. And on this one, I like you said, I still have three pages of notes I can go through. Um, but we won't keep you that long, listeners. So please uh, stay in touch with us. Uh, forums.ballmove.com and directpodcast at gmail.com. That's the best way to get in touch with us. We love reading the comments, and we love putting your comments on the show. Next week. We have David Fincher's most recent film, Gone Girl. And there will be a forum post up on the threads for that. And, uh, yeah, watch that one with your spouse. It'll be real fun. Yeah, no. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited, but I'm going to have to sleep with one eye open again for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, uh, we'll see you next week. And until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.